Hello folks and welcome to episode 4 of the World Beyond the West podcast. A pair of devastating earthquakes erupted in Turkey on Monday, February 6th, which laid waste to hundreds of square kilometers of the country's southeast and neighboring Syria. They are among the most lethal earthquakes to have ever struck the region, and, as of Sunday evening, the death toll stands at a harrowing 33,000 people. But with thousands more trapped under the rubble, or displaced with little to no means of surviving bitter winter temperatures, that number is only going to increase. When a major earthquake like this happens, news outlets love it. Tales of tragedy and bravery, stunning images and videos, and eye-watering casualty figures make for really good stories. But in 2023, the news cycle is faster than ever before, and it won't be long before the earthquake is forgotten, along with the victims. With this in mind, I wanted to find out what happens in the days, weeks and months after an earthquake or other severe natural disaster. What happens to the tens or even hundreds of thousands of people who lose everything? What do governments and other large organisations have to do to keep the affected regions functioning? And how do they learn from the fallout to prevent it from happening time and again? To this end, I spoke with Professor Pavel Alboris, the director of Aston University's Crisis Management Centre in Birmingham, to learn more about what takes place in the months following a natural disaster and how societies can prepare to minimise casualties and the fallout of future events. I spoke with Pavel via Zoom earlier this week, so some of the figures given during our discussion will be a little outdated, but he had plenty of insight to share. An adaptation of our conversation, reinforced with more of my own research and exploration around the topic, is available on the World Beyond the West Substack website and newsletter, which you can find at wbtw.substack.com. You will find a link to the page in the show notes for this episode, as well as a short profile on Pavel, his background, and links to his work and social media also. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Pavel. Thank you uh, very much for meeting with me today. Thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, I think the best way to, to start this off would be for you just to give everybody uh, a quick uh, preview of who you are, um, a little bit of background uh, about your expertise and how you got into the field that you're working in now. Okay, thank you very much. I'm uh, Pavel Alboris. I'm a professor of Operations Supply Chain Management at Aston Business School in Birmingham. But I'm also the director of the Aston Crisis Management Center. We do research in crisis and disaster management and how to help organizations, how to prepare and respond to uh, disasters and, and crises. How did I start in this? Uh, just by, by chance. Yeah, we got invited to do some work with the UK government and the Fire and Rescue Service on helping them prepare for terrorist attacks following the attacks in, in New York in 9-11. And it's been yeah nearly twenty years since I've started in this area. So uh, plenty of experience coming into it. Then um, I think the the Turkey and Syria earthquake is obviously tragic, but it's also incredibly fascinating because it's been a while since we've seen such a, a disaster of such a large scale. Um, I wanted to ask you first of all exactly what happens in the days following such a disaster in terms of um, the government's response and the response of various different aid organizations. What are the logistics involved in that? How does that work? Obviously, the initial priority is to try to rescue as much people as possible. That's, I think, the, the, the initial effort. And uh, what will happen is that the government of Turkey will have some uh, emergency plans, which they will have activated, and also the international community. So in this type of events, well, we see a large number of volunteers helping 
which is very very useful, but also presents some challenges on, on its own. In terms of the wider response, uh, as I say, sort of governments across the world will have also prepared and activated their own uh, plans for international rescue and sent help to to, to, to these countries. So we've seen uh, teams from the UK flying out a couple of days ago. In terms of charities and relief organizations, they will have plans and employ goods uh, like shelter, food, medicine, and so on, and try to get them uh, to, to the area. But yeah, so there are, there are many, many logistical challenges. You just, uh, you kind of led me on to my next question there, which was when the disaster is of such a huge scale, there are obviously going to be logistical challenges in terms of getting the aid directly to the people affected. But when there are so many different international organizations and governments involved in the rescue effort, in Turkey and Syria, you have the, the Turkish government, you have uh, Syria's government, and then you also have opposition held areas, which were hit quite badly as well. So what are the biggest challenges facing those uh, search and rescue teams? What are the obstacles uh, facing them? Well, I mean, in this particular case, I guess uh, the sheer devastation and, and the, the huge areas that need to be covered is one of the main challenges. Low temperatures certainly are, are hindering the response and making getting the people out as quickly as possible uh, even more urgent because otherwise they could they could die not because of the rubble but because of the cold. And as you rightly say, so coordinating all these different agencies is a huge challenge and one was, uh, which uh, we as a, a research center are, are looking into how, how to help these organizations, uh, both national and international, coordinate to make an, an, an effective response. There is the, the issue of infrastructure that is going to be damaged, so hospitals are damaged, airports are damaged, so that puts some extra complications. And as you rightly mentioned, Turkey has a functioning government. Uh, There's the infrastructure uh, in the rest of the country. In terms of Syria, that's uh, an extra layer of challenge, which uh, sort of areas which have been uh, badly damaged in the last decade or so, uh, with lots of people with malnutrition and lack of in- infrastructure, that is going to be making this rescue even even harder. Yeah, just even having access to to the areas uh, presents a challenge, a challenge at one. Something I'm particularly interested in is what happens not just in the days after a major event, but in the weeks and months, because I think the news cycle moves so quickly nowadays. There's going to be reports about this earthquake for the next few days, and then the news will move on to another topic. And what happens in Turkey and Syria will probably be forgotten quite quickly. When the media attention moves on, what are the next steps? I mean, obviously, thousands of people, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people will have been displaced and will have lost pretty much everything they own. What provisions are put in place to to look after them? And what tasks uh, face the government and other aid organizations in the months after an event like this to to rebuild and try and save as many people as possible? I mean, I think that's a, a really good point. Obviously, now all the eyes of the world and are on, on this event, but the new cycle moves on and, and it goes out of mind. Uh, any disaster plan will have different stages. So we normally we'll have four or five stages, mitigation, preparedness, response, which is where we are at the moment, and then recovery and reconstruction. So uh, the Turkish government will have some plans for recovery and reconstruction. But uh, having said that, with the scale of this uh, disaster, 
it's, it's very likely that those plans will change. Uh, it's important that the international community keeps uh, uh, involvement in the long term of uh, because these people will need obviously shelter, foods, they've lost their livelihoods, uh, uh, they lost their homes, their jobs, and they will have to to be help for them to to recover. Uh, it's important that in the future, when rebuilding, that special attention is paid to building uh, all those uh, dwelling house schools and so on, uh, according to code. So there is uh, there was a, a modification to the law in Turkey after the 99 earthquake, 1999 earthquake. But I think the adherence to those regulations is patchy, particularly in this area of the southeast. So yeah, there, there will be a need for a lot of involvement from the international community in the next months and even years ahead. Probably. I'm really interested in the, um, the the sort of five steps you mentioned about planning and preparedness before a disaster, the response in the immediate aftermath, and then the process of reconstructing everything down the line. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how how governments uh, go about planning this kind of thing and who they work with to formulate their responses? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, a, the, the normal disaster management cycle. So initially mitigation is to try to avoid these disasters happening in the first place. So in the case of earthquakes, uh, that will be the building codes, making the, the buildings uh, earthquake proof. Uh, in the case of flood, for example, maybe the construction of flood barriers and so on. Uh, then preparedness is, well, if those mitigation measures do not work or, or it's a, a, an event of large magnitude, then uh, how do we prepare to, to, to respond? Then obviously once it happens, you need to activate those plans that you made once the, the, the initial critical stage is going back to, uh, see how, how we can recover, uh, hopefully to a better stage than they were before. So in many cases, uh, the state that they were before is, is part of what causes the, the crisis in, in the first place. Um, this would be governments working with civil protection authorities, with local government, regional government, uh, with businesses and communities as well. So it's, it's, it's not only about having a responsibility from central government, but getting everyone involved in their planning uh, and preparation and mitigation for, for these disasters. I would quite like to go back to what you said about how you want to rebuild to a better state than you were before. And quite often, the reason that these earthquakes have such a huge toll is because perhaps the, the state they were in before wasn't exactly up to par. The the, the earthquake took place in sort of south uh, eastern Turkey, right? So it was along the Anatolian and the Arabian plates. And like you said as well, the, the 1999 earthquake in Turkey killed 17,000 people. So presumably... Turkey was aware that this is this was obviously a possibility, something that could have happened. And obviously there were two huge earthquakes, both over a magnitude of seven, but it seems as though the devastation they've caused is pretty significant. Would you say that perhaps the reason that's the case is because Turkey's building codes and preparedness wasn't up to scratch? Is that a fair assessment or are there other factors at play here? I don't think the building codes were not up to scratch. So I say there was legislation after the 99 earthquake that required buildings to be reinforced. And actually there was a, a huge investment in the last 14 years of more than 1 billion US dollars on retrofitting buildings. However, from my understanding, most of that was done around Istanbul and Ankara, so the big uh, metropolis to the north. 
and probably not so much down in the southeast. So the buildings are there, the regulations are there. I think it's a, a lack of enforcement and an application of those building regulations. Yeah. And particularly in areas that are further away from the, the major metropolises, right? So the areas in the I south- think, yeah, yeah. Those provinces are often quite remote. Yes, <laughs> which is normally what happens, isn't it? So, yeah, therefore, nice. you're away from from the centers of power. Then the rest, the 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 lower the the, the focus is on on all these issues. It was either the UN or the uh, WHO. I can't remember which body it was, but um, one of them. They reckon that the death toll from this earthquake is likely to reach twenty thousand or more. Do you think that's a fair assessment? And if so, why is this uh, earthquake so so brutal in terms of the death toll? Uh, I mean, obviously, it seems likely. I mean, if, if you think about yesterday morning, we were on 3,000. By the afternoon, we were on 5,000. I don't know how much we are at the moment, around more than 8,000. Uh, and this will uh, probably go. Uh, one issue is, obviously, that was covered quite a widespread area. And these earthquakes were quite close to the surface. Uh, and that makes it the, make, makes the earthquake the, to have a much higher effect on the buildings. And I think that combined with construction practices that we just talked about is it makes this devastation. The, those ten provinces in the south of Turkey that were put under the state of emergency, they were uh, they had arguably the, the highest concentration of refugees in the world because of the Syrian civil war. Obviously, a lot of people moving across the border and um, taking up space in that region. And as a result of that, I imagine. That's one of the reasons the death toll is going to be so high, because there were already so many refugees and displaced people there in poor shelter with poor accommodation. Do you see this creating yet another large wave of refugees? Um, or do you think that Turkey will be more able to sort of mitigate for that? I think it's probably likely there will be probably more people fleeing from, from Syria. Uh, there's going to be probably a lot of uh, uh, in kind of displaced peoples uh, within Turkey, so people from these provinces moving to other areas, and we've seen that movement uh, whenever there have been uh, large earthquakes. So, uh, for example, in the 1995 earthquake in Mexico City, uh, there was quite a, a flow of people out of Mexico City into the provinces in that case. So, I'm guessing in this case could be the other way around: people going from from the south to the big cities like Istanbul and Ankara. But yes, it, it's very likely that that problem is going to be exacerbated. What can governments uh, and other major aid organizations do now, fresh off the back of this earthquake, to learn from this kind of thing and better prepare for the future? I mean, you've mentioned already the legislation in terms of the building codes, but beyond that, what can what can governments do, not just Turkey and Syria, but uh, generally around the world, um, to uh, better mitigate and prepare for these kind of events? Well, I think what will be important is that they evaluate the operations at this stage and see what worked, what didn't. It's actually quite encouraging to see that mistakes that have been made in previous disasters are not repeated. So when there was the earthquake in Haiti, there was a lot of uh, aid that was sent that was not needed. And some they used to have planes sitting on the tarmac, just taking space and, and uh, uh, preventing other planes with things that were needed uh, from landing. So uh, that's, uh, if you saw the communique from the foreign office, saying we are sending to Turkey what they ask for, so not react immediately. 
but it, it'll be interesting to see how this coordination is uh, is happening, particularly when you with an event of this this scale. I think uh, it's going to be in terms of Turkey, obviously going forward trying to reinforce those building codes when they are uh, reconstructing for governments throughout the world. So it may, may, might be a good opportunity to uh, look at their uh, emergency preparedness plans and evaluate whether they are fit for purpose uh, because we, we are having more and more uh, disasters uh, throughout the world. Nothing we need to do uh, to keep revising those plans. What can people in the UK, for example, do when we see something like this happening uh, around the world? What is it that we can do, or people who are interested, what can they do to to help, whether that be to donate or to volunteer in some capacity? I think, uh, well, uh, we've seen already that there are many organizations that are uh, mobilizing to uh, gather donations to, to take clothes and food to, to Turkey. I think there is research, and we are actually uh, starting this project on uh, that uh, demonstrates that donating cash is probably the best way of helping areas in disaster. Why is that? Because uh, that means that with that money, they can buy what they need rather than what we think they need and uh, reactivate the local economy uh, and also you avoid many of the logistical challenges of getting a van, a van or clothes from Birmingham or Manchester to, to to the affected areas, which might 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 hinder more than help in some cases. So yes, yeah, so channel through uh, established relief agencies that would be my my recommendation. And are there any checks and balances in place to make sure that money that is donated is being spent in the best ways? Corruptions, you know, everywhere. You can't, you can't escape it. Um, yeah. Are there any, are there any steps that are put in place to make sure that when monetary aid is donated, try and reduce as much corruption as possible and make sure that money is being spent in the right way? Uh, yeah, I mean that is quite uh, an issue in, in many countries, and unfortunately, as you say, it's that's something which is going to happen. So, in order to mitigate that, it can be either uh, sort of earmark uh, donations to a specific uh, uh, type of relief. Uh, again, we are doing some research at the moment on using digital technologies to track that. So using technologies uh, like blockchain, for example, so that you can see how money moves from place to place and who has access to that money and, and make sure that that money is spent on uh, uh, what is required for the relief of effort and that they don't end up in some bank accounts. So, uh, Officials or or or, or, or other uh, people, uh, so but yeah, it, it is quite 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 a challenge. I think that's something which many of these aid organizations are very aware of, and they have uh, put uh, steps into their their governance to, to make sure that there is transparency. From my point of view, I think use of technology could help somehow uh, in this area. And finally, uh, before I let you go, I'd just like you to tell us a little bit more about the uh, the research that you're doing at the moment at Aston Crisis Management Center. It's You've already mentioned a couple of projects that you're working on, but tell everybody a little bit about what are you guys working on? We, we tend to work on uh, projects uh, that look at uh, how to better manage uh, crisis and disasters. We have a number of projects at the moment. Well, actually, one of them is uh, to de- develop through gamification 
to educate the public to see the effect of donations and the contrast between donating so clothes and food versus donating cash, for example. We have colleagues that work on ethics, so looking at uh, equality, equity, fairness of relief distribution. How can we help with that? So looking at how I mentioned blockchain earlier, but other technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, how can they can help for needs assessment? So when you have a disaster like this, uh, how do you decide where to send your resources? We're also looking at decision making. So how do you make decisions in crisis and disasters? Uh, again, to taking into account technology, taking into account uh, the ethics of, of, of those decisions because decisions that are made in a disaster like this are going to be, for some people, literally the life of or, or death situation, whether you send uh, uh, resources there to, to their area or not, so whether you allocate them to a specific shelter or not, uh, and so on. So, And we also do a lot of work in terms of logistics, shelter management, sort of long-term recovery as well. So it, it is quite, quite varied. Uh, do you have any online resources or uh, any web pages or uh, publications that people who are interested can follow at all? Um, yes, yeah, so we have a, a website that uh, that uh, shows our uh, our work uh, at, at, at in the Aston University website, uh, where you can find us. We also have uh, social media at uh, in Twitter at Aston Crisis, uh, and uh, uh, we tend to publish as well uh, papers and, uh, and reports and you can access those through the website in, in the research website in, in Aston University. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Pavel. I uh, really appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, thank you very much. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Episode four of the World Beyond the West podcast is now wrapped up. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to Pavel as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. Um, unfortunately, we, we actually had some more uh, content recorded for you, but problems with the Zoom connection and the audio quality meant that, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it in today. Um, we will endeavour uh, to make sure that the quality of the audio and our Zoom connection is better for future episodes. Um, and with that in mind, um, those of you who have listened to the rest of the episodes will know that that was the first interview I've done on this podcast. Um, I'm personally quite keen to do more. I think uh, there are many people out there uh, with a lot more expertise and knowledge than me to um, talk about some of these subjects. So if you enjoyed this, uh, please uh, share the podcast, uh, like it, and also please give me feedback. Tell me what you enjoy. Uh, tell me what you uh, like the most, and I will endeavor to provide it for you. Uh, that's all from me today. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a lovely week. All the best. <laughs>